morning. Congratulations, graduates. Stephen Chafin, you missed out. <laughs> Stephen, Stephen was in my home group in Columbia. Yeah, graduated from Adair County this, this weekend. All right, so um, we're going to pick up judges right from the very beginning. Um, how many of you guys were here last week for the marathon tag team effort? Um, I wasn't here, but I got to listen to it on the audio archive, and it was pretty great. Um, props to you guys. Uh, high fives. I don't know if is anybody here. I don't see you guys. Some of them were here in this first service. That's what happens when you, guys, when you split between two different services. Um, but last week was the introduction to Judges. And so this week, in my view anyway, so we're going to be hitting the prologue. Um, chapters 1 and 2 of Judges. And we're going to be uh, picking up some of the themes that um, are going to be carried throughout this series on the book and begin to talk about and, and dissect you know, why they're important for us. And I should preface the message this morning by explaining that I have some sentimental ties to the book of Judges, and that might sound a little bit weird, and so I'll kind of explain that a little bit. Um, and my, my sentimental ties are, are sentimental in the sense of, like, maybe you have, like, a favorite TV show from when you were a kid, that maybe if you, you catch a rerun now or somebody brings it up, you know, you just kind of get this these warm, fuzzy feelings or whatever. They bring back memories, that sort of thing. And that's kind of kind of my sentimental tie to the book of Judges. And... Um, so you may remember in one of my past messages, I talked about this group of friends that I had in high school that I hung out with. And if you would have asked any of them at that time what their favorite book of the Bible was, hands down, all of them would have said Judges right away. And uh, th- that maybe explains some things about these, this group of guys. Uh, you know, they were a little quirky. And, um, but if, if you look at Judges and it, for like any point in time at all, you realize that it has a lot to offer anybody that's a high school boy or has a high school boy type mentality, right? Um, there, there's gruesome violence in the book of Judges, you know, like on the order of Game of Thrones or, uh, you know, and, and anything, you know, on the, up there with anything you find on TV, HBO, that sort of thing. You know, it's got awesome battle scenes. There's assassinations. Uh, justice is carried out. There's even some really good one-liners. Ehud, I'm looking at you. Look them up. <laughs> um, but really, for, for any high school boy, anybody with a high school boy mentality, there's a lot for you. <laughs> you know, pique your interest. Um, the book can read like a superhero story at times. And uh, considering all the violence in action, the, there's this tendency, I think, for us to approach the book and think, well, you know, Really, what Judges has to offer us is, is a sense of cultural relevancy, right? Like, on the same level as, as HBO or Hollywood. You know, we can, we can reach people outside of the church with the book of Judges because it has something to offer them that's relevant. Um, you know, especially when we think about our, our modern-day society's fascination with all things blood, guts, and violence, right? And, uh, and that's all well and good, but... A, a surface level fascination with the text is is going to hold us back from grasping and searching for the deeper questions and the deeper themes um, that are in this book. This is a book that's worth our study and our reflection and our meditation. It's, it's worth seeking out um, after those gems of, of revelation. Our, our response should be deeper than, oh cool, he killed that guy by stabbing him in the gut. <laughs> 
<laughs> or, man, Samson was so B.A. There are greater questions in this book. Um, things like, how do you reconcile this violence with our revelation of the love of God? How do those two things fit together? Where does Jesus fit into this story? As we read more about Israel and their story throughout Judges, is it really our story? And how often do I treat the Lord in the same way that the Israelites do in the book? So these are some of the questions you know we're going to be looking at throughout the series. And I just kind of wanted to encourage you up front, um, let's approach the text with a deeper level of commitment and fascination than just what's on the surface. Because there's going to be a lot to keep our interest. You know, we get some of our are more famous Sunday school lessons from this book. And so there'll, there'll be things that keep us interested along the way, but more importantly, there are lessons that we really need to hear um, and that are really relevant for us today. So we're going to just jump into the text. Chapters 1 and 2 of Judges are considered the prologue. kind of already brought this up. They're considered the prologue for the book. And just to tell you a little bit about my personality, I'm the kind of person that when I pick up a book, I really feel like the prologue is important. The introduction is important. You know, some people might pick up, flip to the first chapter and just start reading and go with the story. But I'm thinking, you know, if the author took the time to write that up and put it in there, it's probably important. It's just me. I'm not saying it's right and wrong, but I think it, that's how I feel. And so we're going to hang out in the prologue today. And what's interesting about these two chapters, the prologue, is we kind of get the same story from two different perspectives. So chapter 1, as you begin reading in Judges, you're reading the historian's perspective on um, this time in, in Israel. It's about 350 years, and it's, it talks about you know the typical questions that historians answer, the, the who, the what, the where, you know, what's going on. And, um, and so it's talking about how Israel begins to take hold of the land that God had promised them. Um, Joshua began that con- the conquest um, in the book just before Judges, Joshua. And then um, it's left to the Israelites to, to uh, finish the work that Joshua started. The second part of the prologue is told from the perspective of a prophet. We have a, a prophet's perspective. Um, and so it's, it's the same story told but with a view into, rather than just the who, what, when, or where, a view into the spiritual state of Israel throughout the same time period, if that makes sense. And I, I wanted to bring that out right off the top because it's really important for us to understand the literary perspective of Scripture as it's written, especially when we're doing, dealing with an Old Testament text. You know, Whenever we, we open an Old Testament text, we, we can encounter um, historical narratives, we encounter poetic books. We encounter wisdom books. We encounter prophetic, other prophetic books. And so we want to we understand that you know, when we open up the scripture, we want to be able to put ourselves in the, shoe of the, author, or the shoes of the author and, and realize what perspective they're writing this from. Because you, know, you can open up a poetic text looking for historical narrative and be really confused. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? So we're going to hang out in the, uh, the prophetic part of the prologue this morning. Seth, you can go ahead and put up the first scripture, Judges 2. 
before I read it, let's just take a, a moment. We're going to pause and invite the Lord. So, Jesus, we just love you. Thank you for being here this morning. Just ask as we, we dig into this Old Testament text, Lord, that you would reveal yourself. Lord, that you would um, embody the words that are spoken um, this morning, that that your, the revelation and the lessons that you want us to hear this morning would be what we, we take away. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and your goodness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Judges 2, starting in verse 7, says this, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephron, north of Mancash. So Joshua was the successor to Moses. If you remember, Moses is the one who leads Israel out of captivity from Egypt into the desert, and you know he's he's leading the way for 40 years as they wander through the the desert. And just before they get to the promised land, Moses dies and Joshua takes over the leadership. Um, and he begins to help Israel take possession of the land that the Lord had promised them. And when Josh, Joshua took over for Moses, God assured him that if he would trust and obey the Lord and remain devoted to his word and the law, God would deliver him, deliver him from his enemies and give Israel their promised land. And he would guide Joshua in all things. And this promise, if you want to look it up, it's in, it's in Joshua uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. But there's some interesting things for us to consider about Joshua's life um, that differenti- differentiate his leadership from Moses. So when Moses was leading Israel through the desert, one thing we see is that God was closely leading them. Literally there was a supernatural manifestation of God's guiding presence. We read in Exodus that the Lord led the Israelites as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. All they had to do was literally look up into the sky and they could see and know that the Lord was there with them, guiding them. But when Joshua began to take Israel into the promised land, that supernatural manifest guidance ended. The cloud was no longer there. The pillar of fire was no longer there. And Joshua had to lead the nation by faith. Another uh, difference between Joshua and Moses is Moses had a level of intimacy um, with the Lord that pretty much none of us know. And Joshua certainly did not know. (laughs) The Lord would meet with, with Moses in the tent of meeting and speak to him face to face. But we're going to put up Joshua 1.8. And this is what the Lord told Joshua about their relationship. He said, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate, it, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. It's a little bit different than meeting face-to-face every day in the tent of meeting. Um, Rather than personally guiding Israel day in, day out, God tells Joshua, 
Keep this book of the law on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. So they move from, you know, almost personal encounter and step-by-step guidance to actually having to apply the word of the law, of the law, the word of the Lord, um, and live it out daily. But along with this came a promise, right? So if you're careful to obey everything that's written in it, you will be prosperous and successful. Let's flip back to uh, Judges chapter 2, just so we can have this back up on there. Um, You'll see in verse 7 that Joshua was careful to obey the Lord. And this is how we know that. It says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And I I pause there because the next part, part is really important too. It wasn't just the lifetime of Joshua, but also of the elders who outlived him. That entire generation, the people obeyed the Lord um, and followed him faithfully. Joshua was such the model of obedience, he was able to lead a generation in faithfulness to the Lord. So Joshua and his generation, they, they set a high water mark in the book of Judges. This is as, this is as good as it's going to get for us in Judges, I hate to say. Um, because after this, we're going to notice a pattern um, we're going to see a pattern of, um, of compromise and decline that ultimately is going to lead Israel down to a path of all-out rebellion. But I think it's important to, um, to set the stage here so that we know where Israel, Israel is right at the beginning. They're taking hold of their inheritance. They're faithfully serving the Lord. Um... They're being obedient to his word. And so with that understanding in mind, knowing that, you know, that, those are things that we want to model our lives after, we can look at what went wrong so we don't make the same mistakes. See, um, in verse 8 here, it says, Joshua's life was marked um, by this epitaph. He was the servant of the Lord. If they had gravestones, I'm sure that's what was, was written on his gravestone. He was the servant of the Lord. But the generation that follows him gets marked by a different, um, a different saying, a different label. So let's put up um, the next series of verses. Judges 2, 10 through 15. Let's see what happens. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. A much different picture, right? So this shows us the second generation, the generation that follows Joshua. And so what we want to do this morning is begin to dissect what went wrong. Joshua was really great. Everybody served and and obeyed the Lord. So what went wrong when the next generation stepped up? Um, 
the fact that the second generation walked away from the Lord really throws up a red flag for me. I mean, obviously it's not good that they, um, they rebelled, obviously. But um, one of the reasons why a red flag goes up for me is because one of the things that we're really passionate about here at the Vineyard um, is a phrase, multi-generational faithfulness. It's not on one of the banners back there, um, but it is something that we, we highly value and something that we're passionate about. And let me explain what it is. So we feel that it's, it's not just good enough as a community of believers to, to work and cultivate a personal relationship with the Lord. Like, that's great. Um, that's the first step, but it's not good enough. We also want and feel that we are called to bring up our, our kids to know and to follow the Lord. Does that make sense? Multi-generational faithfulness. Something that we really, really care about. You know, Jesus gives us the great commission, go out and make disciples. Well, here we feel that disciple-making begins at home. Yeah. If you're having a hard time making disciples in your own home, you probably shouldn't be going overseas to try to make disciples there. Let's start at home. Um, now, maybe if you, if you know me or you notice, I don't have any kids yet. You won't see any little ones uh, of mine running around here causing all kinds of ruckus. Um, but I am certainly of an age where it's, one, a distinct possibility, and, uh, two, it's something that I think about, I consider, and, uh, you know, I desire. And because of that, my wife and I, you know, we often talk about these sort of things. We talk about, you know, how we want to, when we have kids, how we want to take care of them, how we want to provide for their well-being, how we want to provide for their education. Um, what do we want to do to uh, work, work on their development, to, uh, to ensure their their growth and their maturity. You know, the, the typical things any parent is aspiring to, right? Hopefully. <laughs> and so with all of that in mind, you know, all these conversations Emily and I might have about our future kids, it would be really foolish for us to consider all of that and never think, how are we going to teach them the ways of the Lord? Because we, can, we could try to and strive to provide for all those other things, take care of their well-being, but if we aren't teaching them to know and serve the Lord, then all of that's for naught. You know, it's, it's, it's because of that, uh, ultimately, you know, the Lord says, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will, will be provided for you. Yeah. If, if we don't hope and pray and determine in our hearts that we're going to raise our kids in the ways of the Lord, um, we are not going to see them um, be as, their well-being be as good as it could be, um, their education as good as it could be, their growth and maturity as good as it could be. It's really, really important. It's something that we strive for here at the Vineyard. So that's why, I want to, that's why a red flag goes up when I read about in the second generation here in Judges. And so one question you may be asking yourself is, is if, if Joshua was such a great leader, what went wrong? How did we get from Israelites remaining faithful to the Lord to this section, just a couple of verses later, where they are serving Baal and forsaking the Lord? And for me, the answer um, is, is both in what they do so it says that they served the Baals. So the, the answer about what went wrong is that they served the Baals, but that's also the problem, if that makes any sense. I'll try to explain it. Um, if you go back and read chapter 1, 
we see a very different pattern of events than what we were used to in Joshua. When Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, they have victory after victory after victory. And the reason is, is because Joshua obeyed the Lord and he had faith that that God alone would give them victory. And that's what the Lord promises this generation of Israelites to follow him. If they obey the Lord, he will drive the people out before them so that they can take possession of the land. The fact that they don't take possession of the land, um, that's something that we see in chapter 1 is they run into obstacles taking possession of the land. So that's that's a symptom of the larger problem, that they're not trusting the Lord, if that makes any sense. Um, So we're not going to go back and read chapter 1, but I'll summarize some of the things that happen. Um, the tribes, it falls to the tribes after Joshua dies to go take possession. And at first they get some initial victories. Uh, obviously they're trusting the Lord. Um, but then we see this pattern of, of compromise and defeat. Um, there's, there's one story in particular where one of the tribes of Israel has to enlist the help of a Canaanite informer or a Canaanite spy. They say, you know, if, if you'll bring us into this city, we will take it. We'll spare, spare your family. So this Canaanite does, and they get in and they take the city. But then the Canaanite turns around and he rebuilds that same city somewhere else within the inherited land of Israel, the promised land. It basically negates the entire victory. They're supposed to be depossessing the land of all the Canaanites, and so they take one city and the Canaanites just go and build another one. So there's one compromise. Um... And then you see a snowball effect happen in chapter 1 where they have more and more trouble forcing the Canaanites out and they end up making treaties with them, allowing them to cohabitate with them in the land. It's a, it's a symptom of a larger problem. It started off with a little bit of compromise. The Israelites purposed in their hearts that they were going to take the land by their own strength, their own schemes, their own strategies. What they were really doing was withdrawing their trust and their faith that the Lord would actually deliver um, the land and the cities for them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So their lack of trust wasn't something that just happened overnight, right? Um, Maybe it was just, it it was one battle. Um, The Israelites, maybe they forgot to pray or invite the Lord to to be with them in battle. and, 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 but they still get the victory. The next time they're making deals with the Canaanites, and eventually it leads to making treaties um, and cohabitating among them. So they, they put themselves on a path of increasing compromise, walking away from faith in the Lord and his instructions, and it was this compromise, allowing the Canaanites to remain in the land that put them on the path to all-out rebellion and worshiping the Baals. The Baals were the gods of the Canaanites, right? So for us, one takeaway that, um, that we should get from this is that we cannot allow ourselves to settle for living with false gods in our own land, in our own homes, um, our own communities. And these are the things that destroy life in our own day and age. And I'll just name a couple of examples. A false god in our own day and age is, is a dependence on money rather than trusting the Lord for provision. 
a false god is worry, which is a symptom of a lack of trust in the Lord. Lust and personal gratification are false gods that lead us away from from the Lord's love. And, And there are many others that we could all think of. And so the question we must ask ourselves, keeping in mind that we're a community that values multi-generational faithfulness, is are we modeling a life of obedience to the Lord or are we modeling a life of, of compromise? The word of caution here is that, is that we should be keeping the faith, continuing to trust in the Lord all of our days. Right? We're playing the long game here. It's not just the long game in our own lives, but it's the long game for um, the children that follow us and our children's children. One of the ways that Joshua was able to model obedience was um, by keeping the word of God in his heart, meditating on it day and night, and he cherished the promise of God. Right. The way he did this is he would allow God the opportunity to come in and, and ensure the victory. Joshua stepped out in faith and allowed God to deliver on his promises. So something that we should consider, maybe if we notice that in our own lives, we're in a place where we don't feel like the Lord um, is delivering for us anymore, or um, maybe we feel like we're not grasping the promises of of God for some reason or other. One of the things we should consider is, are there areas in our lives or in my life where I am no longer trusting the Lord, but instead I'm relying on my own strength. This is what the Israelites did that put them on the path of rebellion. And so the answer to this question is important, not just for ourselves, um, as we see in the text, it's also important for the generations that follow us. Now, um, when I talk about multi-generational faithfulness, I'm sensitive to the fact that there are people in the room that maybe that's not on your radar. You know, like, um, maybe you're just a kid yourself or um, at least feel that way and children aren't on your radar. And I'm also sensitive to the fact that perhaps there are those of you in the room that, that you know, your children have moved on. They've grown up. They've gone out on their own. And I'm sensitive to the fact that for you, when I talk about multi-generational faithfulness, you start to tune me out because, you know, you tried, you gave your all, raised your kids right to bring them up in the ways of the Lord, and they still walked away. So for you, when I talk about multi-generational faithfulness, the emotions that are brought up are are guilt and shame, um, and it's painful for you. So I have, a, I have a simple message for you this morning. One that I feel is really important. I feel like the Lord wants you to hear that you are not a failure. The effort that you put into raising your kids right was not overlooked by the Lord. And as public as you perceive your failure to be, the Lord saw what you gave in secret behind the closed doors of your home and your family, and the Lord will reward you. 
I also want to encourage you not to give up. Don't give up on yourself and don't give up on others. And the truth is, is that the extent of your family is more than biological. Right? Yes, you have your kids, but you also have a family here. A whole church family that needs you. You know, there are people in this room that need parents and need grandparents. And so we need your instruction. We need your wisdom. And we need your encouragement. Our church is incomplete without you. So don't sit on the sidelines. And, and it's true for all of us that we really do need each other. This is something that I take from this prologue in Judges is, is that we need each other. You know, I'm thankful for the church. I'm thankful for this church in particular. And I'm thankful for the encouragement of the believers in my life who have spurred me on in my faith time and time and time again. I'm sure some of you in the room can relate, you know. I've needed every bit of it. One of the lessons that rings out of this prologue, if we're open to hear it, is that the, op- the impact of our choices ripple across the paths of those around us. And so we see in, in the prologue of Judges, um, it works in a negative concept, a context that you know, the Israelites started down on this path of compromise that led to rebellion, but it can also work in the opposite direction. And as believers, we really need it to. One of the themes that gets repeated in Judges is that this was a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And I think that's actually a reflection of the prevailing attitude in our culture and our society. That, and we as the church, we need each other to spur one another on because of this. We need to spur one another on in faith and obedience to Christ so that we avoid the same pitfalls that tripped up the generation of Israelites and Judges. One final point about this prologue. This is a time period in Israel's history when they they lived without a king. Uh, Moses wasn't a king. Joshua wasn't a king. And um, at this point, it would be another 350 years before the Israelites finally finally wear God down and and he, he gives them a king. And the the reason why the Israelites had to wear him down is because God intended all along to be their true king, right? So judges should be for us a picture of what life is like when God is our king. The parallel to us today is that we too live in an imperfect reality um, in which God is our true king and ruler. Yes, King Jesus sits on the throne in heaven, but the full glory of God's kingdom hasn't been realized yet. So I, be, I began to think about, you know, what, what happened to the people and judges? And one of the things I realized is they got into trouble because they were pushing the boundaries of God's kingdom. Um, they were stepping outside of his boundaries and accepting other gods and lesser kingdoms. And so I asked myself, you know, what are the, the purposes that boundaries have in a kingdom context? One, they keep you safe, right? The boundaries of the kingdom keep you safe. If you stay within the the boundaries, you're safe. 
So in the same respect, they mark the edge of your protection. And they also mark the edge of your provision. The Israelites failed to grasp that the best of life is really found inside the walls of the kingdom. And instead, they longed after lesser kingdoms. And for us today, too, all around us, there are lesser kingdoms competing for our attention and competing for our allegiance. They promise things like personal success, prosperity, pleasure, fame, the fulfillment of all of your needs and all of your desires. But to chase after them is ultimately to leave the boundaries and the safety, the protection, and the provision of God. I'll say it again. This is why scripture tells us that we must pursue God and his kingdom above all else, and everything else will be provided for us. What's best for us is really on the inside of his kingdom. And the false kingdoms of this earth will make a lot of promises, but ultimately they are a snare that will entrap you and invite death and defeat. So as we continue in this series of Judges, we want to keep in mind some of these lessons from the prologue. There'll be themes that pop up again and again as we dig into these stories. Um, really, we see from, from the beginning, there's a high-water mark in Israel's history. And because of their compromise and the, with, and the withdrawal of their trust in God, they head down a path of, of compromise and rebellion. So for us, compromise is not an option. And one question that Judges causes us to ask is, are we modeling obedience or compromise? Because around here we value multi-generational faithfulness. It's not just enough for for us to be obedient to the Lord, but we, we really want to instill those values in our kids and our children's kids. And so to that end... We really need each other. The the extent of our family really does cross biological boundaries. And then finally, we should be on guard against the lesser gods in the kingdoms around us. To welcome them is to leave the safety, the protection, and the provision of the Lord. What's best for us is really inside his kingdom. We have a ministry team this morning. You guys can go ahead and make your way forward. Before we close, I just want to remind you that it is Prophetic Sunday. Um, you can sign up in the kiosk. Sammy Joe's back there. And um, we have a team of people here that really want to encourage you and bless you. If you never had um, prophetic ministry, I really encourage you to sign up. Um, today's the day. So I want the rest of us stand up. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you that we have a family here that really does desire to chase after you generation after generation. Holy Spirit, I just invite you now um, 
to minister across the room. Maybe for you, as I was talking about compromise and um, and not trusting the Lord, there, the Holy Spirit brought up some, some issues. Or maybe even now the Holy Spirit is bringing up some issues in your life. So, um, Father God, I just ask you to um, to bring those things to light right now. And Holy Spirit, I just ask for the courage and the strength to defeat those things so that we may return to you and return to the safety, the protection, and the provision of the kingdom. Lord, I ask you to bless this people this week. Would you cause the light of your face to shine upon them? Thanks for who you are. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.